You are now listening to the Whipped Cream Podcast with Bianca Harris and Chantel Chapman. Today's podcast features Joseph Lee, a union psychoanalyst based out of Virginia Beach. I'm going to keep this super short because he's going to explain the vast, amazing work that he does. But this podcast is part one of a three hour and 45 minute conversation. Get ready. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This is Bianca. And Chantel. And we are here with Joseph Lee. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure to be here and I've really enjoyed some of the conversations we've had leading up to it. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, oh uh, yeah, you guys are in for a treat. Bianca and I had a prep call with Joseph that we thought would like take maybe 10 minutes and then we ended up being on the phone for an hour and 45 minutes and it was so good. Our minds were blown. So we cannot wait to dive into this today with you, Joseph. Thank you. So, I mean, where should we start? I think maybe, Joseph, if we, if we can give the listeners a little bit of background as to what you do and maybe why you started doing this, I think that would be a great starting point. Sure. So in my professional life, I'm a Jungian analyst. And psychoanalysis is some of the earliest form of mental health treatment. Um, Freud, most people know about. And Freud was one of the first people that were speculating about things like the nature of the unconscious mind, or things could be going on below your conscious awareness. You know, prior to that, people just assumed that, you know, whatever you were thinking or whatever you said was the end of the story. But Freud began to be really interested in dreams, interested in the way that outer symptoms could be tied to really secret, mysterious processes going on deep in the unconscious. And after Freud established himself, many other um, mental health clinicians, psychiatrists, began to launch forward from that work. And C.G. Jung was his protege. Uh, Freud expected that he would kind of take over the the whole shebang. But uh, Jung found his own direction to go, and he expanded on the ideas. So as a Jungian analyst, you know, I work in private sessions and I do clinical dream analysis as a way of trying to get a hint of what's going under the surface. And some of the assumptions that we make is that when people can discover and encounter that secret part of themselves, that a kind of healing and a restoration of wholeness can happen. And a lot of these ideas have already entered into the popular culture. You know, for instance, Jung is the one who differentiated between introversion and extroversion. He actually created those words. Ooh. And, you know, we throw them around all the time. You know, and Jung was the one who talked about your mother complex or your father complex. You know, and those kind of things show up in cartoons now. But we often don't know where to attribute them to. So that's, that's how my work uh, launched but how I find my way to it started in my undergraduate degree. I have a, a degree, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting. And I came out of high school in Long Island thinking, you know, I was going to hit Broadway. <laughs> and <laughs> very naive, very uninformed, and having no sense of whether or not I had any talent, but I had audacity. So for a four-year degree, 
And in my uh, senior year, there was an opportunity to take a couple of electives. And I decided that I would take theories of personalities, thinking that would help me with character development. And in that class, you know, I was exposed to the European psychological theoricians, which was Freud, Jung, and others. And as soon as I was, you know, reading through the section on Jung, I thought, God, everything this guy is talking about is absolutely relevant to the way I'm thinking, what I'm yearning for, how I understand the world and would like to understand the world. And at that time, I had this inner certainty that some, at some point in my life, I would take on the journey of becoming a Jungian analyst. But I also knew that that was really far ahead. And it's a really funny story. So in my 40s, you know, I started training to be an analyst and had to get a, a master's degree in, in mental health before I could do that. And so I'm posting that on Facebook and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And one of my friends who I went to my um, acting school with, Irene Glazos, who's an actress in New York, she uh, sends me an email and she says, Joe, you're not going to believe this. I don't know how this has happened, but um, for that psychology class, you wrote a paper in, in, in handwriting, you wrote a paper on Jung, and you gave it to me to listen to, to read, and I have saved it for like 30 years, wow. and I'm going to email it to you, which was astounding, astounding that she saved it, and, and totally humbling and embarrassing when I read it to myself. Um, but also astounding that it went that far back in your history, right? Like, right on. Yeah, that's really cool. And then it's like this echo from that original seed kind of came flying back to me through my friend, <laughs> which comes to this idea of synchronicity and yeah. an idea called telos. I was just going to ask you, what is the Jungian perspective on synchronicities? So synchronicity, from the way Jung def defined it, was an a-causal a connection between two events that created a deep sense of meaning inside of an individual. So synchronicity is a word that is kind of commonly used as well as serendipity. You know, you're thinking about somebody and the phone rings and, and that person is actually, you know, on the other end. Or you're thinking about a, a high school friend you haven't talked to in 20 years and then you open Facebook and there's a friend request from them. And these kinds of just astounding moments happen so often um, that, that I think everybody has a sense of them. Jung also noticed this, and he had a rather famous experience in one of his client sessions that caused him to really dive into this question. So what happened to him is he was in a session with a client, and the client was telling a dream. And in the dream was this very elaborate luminous scarab beetle that is um, indigenous only to the Middle East. And they're telling the, the stream story. And then after the story, Jung goes over to the window to open up the window, and a beetle exactly like that flies into the room. And a beetle that there's no explanation for how that could be in Switzerland. And so the those two events happening were just so stunning to him that, that he took this on as a kind of question. 
The second thing that happened, which ignited his interest, is he was analyzing a um, mathematician, a, a quantum physics guy named Pauli. And as they were going through the dreams and he was developing a relationship with Pauli and trying to really understand this new branch of math and physics that was emerging, he and Pauli began to feel like there was something about physics and quantum physics that was talking to this psychological process of synchronicity. And in a nutshell, what the idea is that human beings exist in a field of energy that extends from the personal unconscious into matter itself. This, by the way, is actually a spiritual idea. You know, now that we have all these translations of yogic texts and hermetic texts, even certain shamanic teachings, that this, the intuition that this was true was really, you know, we now know was not uncommon. But to a scientist in Switzerland, you know, in the 1930s, that was kind of a radical idea for him to come up with. Right. It's, when you were talking about it, it like gave me chills. I was like, oh. <laughs> because you hear the concept a lot, especially now in the past, I would say five years, I hear it a lot more. Um, like thoughts become things. But then mm -hmm. I'm always interested to know, like, what does that really mean? What does that look like? Can you measure it? Can we prove it? Like, I'm always kind of, um, I guess, ruminating about that. I'm like, I, could, I can believe it because I've, I've practiced it within my life. But then I'm like, what about the thoughts that I don't know exist within my brain? Like, exactly like the subconscious thoughts that I'm like, I don't want that to exist, right? I right. And, and that's exactly right. So not only might there be this continuous field that extends all the way into matter, into the psychological life of human beings, and perhaps into some rarefied spiritual realm, but that there is an intercommunication going on. By the way, this was the idea that Oprah Winfrey got so excited about when she was touting that book, The Secret. And she was even like founding schools in other parts of the world to try to share this idea that setting an intention setting goals, visualizing goals, could in fact create a trajectory that influenced life itself, that, that life could even shift how it orients to us to create opportunities. And, and the idea around that is there is this communication at, this, at some mysterious level. If there is this cross-communication between the human psyche and this field that penetrates matter, then all of our communications from us must be having some kind of an influence. Now, we can approach that in a mystical way, but we can also approach it in a psychological way. So here's one model of thinking about it. This elderly analyst many years told me this, um, this metaphor, which I just thought was so illuminating. So I want you to imagine that you live in a house and you know everything about the house that you live in. You've decorated it, you've made choices about it, and it's a house that you really enjoy. But unbeknownst to you, there is another 
basement area that you actually never knew about. And in that basement, another person lives, has a whole other separate life, separate opinions, separate agendas, and that from time to time, that person will write a message, stuff it into a bottle, and toss it out from under the crawl space. It rolls down the lawn onto the sidewalk. Somebody comes along the sidewalk, finds it, picks up the bottle, and reads the message, and then comes and rings your doorbell to talk to you about it. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that story that I can feel in my body. Me too. But there's there's some truth about it because we've all had this experience where yeah. people are like coming up to us or they're behaving towards us in a way that's like totally bizarre. Like we can't understand why somebody would think we'd be even open to this or that, or that they would react to us. But if we can imagine that there's another person living in your basement who is sending out messages that opens up a whole other category of curiosity. I have, sorry, I have a question that just came up because Chantal and I talk about a lot about addiction and recovery. Now, do you think this other person that's hiding in the basement could be dormant things from your past that need to be healed, that need that when they come to the surface are so shocking? Does that make sense? Like they need to be kind of acknowledged and dealt with from someone yes. you don't realize exists? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and this goes into this, the idea that the unconscious or the secret part of the human psyche is holding all kinds of essential information. It's holding parts of your personality, which were rejected in your upbringing. And it's also holding traumatic memories, which perhaps in childhood were too awful to retain awareness of. And it's also holding all of these archetypal forces that are pressing on us in ways that are really powerful and sometimes even magical. So coming to this idea of addiction, addiction, I think, has a couple of different components. One is that it's a maladaptive way of trying to respond to suffering and pain. So when we're raised in a home, where there's even a modest amount of suffering, but for some reason there is inadequate soothing, that the parents or the people that are in charge are not noticing the children are suffering or do not know how to respond or don't respond in any way, then the child is left to find their own solutions to their fear, to their confusion, to physical pain. And those solutions are often not terribly effective in childhood. So children begin to exhibit any number of different symptoms that they're not coping well with the kinds of suffering in their lives. When I've talked to people in that or who had that situation in their childhood, they'll tell me something like, I was 12 years old. And my father poured me a drink. And I took that drink and for the first time in my life felt relaxed. 
And it was so shocking, I didn't even know my body was capable of that. And from that moment on, that's where I went to. Wow. It's hard to believe that a child, you know, by the time, let's say they're 11 or 12, and they're kind of discovering things like weed or alcohol or, or any number of other things that could become addictive, that they're being introduced to something as simple as feeling relaxed or safe. I can totally to that. I remember like smoking weed when I was maybe like 13 and then that was like how I soothed my pain. So that became a really long drawn out. It was so normal for me to soothe my pain that way that I was like, why would you like, who doesn't do it? Like, there's people that don't do it this way. It was mm -hmm. so out of my lens of um, understanding that you can <laughs> relax or soothe your pain or deal with things in a different way that I didn't, I honestly didn't believe that there was another way. Because and particularly from such a young age too right, right. and and when we discover these things at a young age we also have not discovered our own capacity for creative problem solving you know so at 13 getting stoned or drunk seems like the only option because we haven't really learned how to sit down and think through everything we're just trying to get through the day <laughs> without falling apart yeah so i totally understand how that would happen, Bianca. And we can get really stuck in that. Um, and what we can find is that those kinds of uh, addictive ways of soothing stress also dampen down other essential developments in the psyche. So that by the time we're 30 or 40, there are certain psychological skills that we have not um, grown, that we have not developed because we've kept ourselves kind of sleepy or worse through our addiction. And this is where- Sorry to interrupt you, I just have to say this. I'm just so, I'm realizing so much within your, within your communication. It's just like when I was using for the past, the last part of my addiction um, heavily, I didn't dream for probably, well, um, I didn't know that I dreamt anyway for probably two or three years. Wow. I was like, wow, I just don't dream anymore. Wow. And as soon as that kind of, like, as soon as that stopped, I remember it like a month later being totally clean and sober and my dreams were starting to come back. And I was like, whoa. That's a wonderful example of, of a kind of interruption in the natural psychic flow that we don't even know is missing until it comes back. And then it's like a companion that, you know, we didn't know we were missing. So I'm curious, when your dreams came back, did that also signal a, a new kind of trajectory in your creative life or in decisions that you made? Yes, because, I mean, when I did remember the dream, it was almost giving me messages as to which direction I needed to go in. Right on, yeah. about the past. Like, now I'm having more dreams about, like, my childhood and stuff, but right in that pocket of when it was they were starting to come back. Um, they were dreams about telling me like where to go, what to like, what kind of path to take then that I was safe. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. Really interesting. So one way of thinking about a dream is that the dream is sometimes can be thought of as a medicine that in the waking life, for instance, if we're feeling really anxious and frightened, 
We are not having an experience. We don't even know who we are when we feel safe. So often the psyche will provide dreams of what it's like to be safe and how you might behave if it were safe. So you might dream of being safe and making certain decisions, which would be so innovative in the waking life, because you can't imagine being safe enough to take that kind of risk. Wow. So in the dream life, you get a taste, a little possibility of what's the opposite? What would it be like? And that's because there's something inside the soul that loves you and is trying to help you and cares about you. And if we can think of dreams as messages in that way, we can begin to feel companioned, even when the outer circumstances are leaving us, you know, without a physical companion. That is so beautiful. Wow. Do you ever see, um, I, I would love to talk about the process of individuation and if you mm. can maybe tell um, our listeners what that, what that means. But my question is, in that process of individuation, do you ever see um, it very present with addicts who kind of hit a rock bottom and then they're at that point where like, I need to change? Like that, would that be considered the start of the process of individuation? That would be the best scenario. So my understanding of 12-step programs and my clients um, who talk to me about their experiences in 12-step, in the idea of hitting rock bottom, that the ego is finally malleable enough that its defenses have proved utterly useless. And it's in that moment that the ego is soft enough to discover or to tolerate a message from the soul or the higher, uh, the higher self, the higher power that it would be willing to listen to. And that restoration of the relationship between the waking personality or the ego and this deeper kind of spiritual center really is, is the beginning of a recovery because there's something about being addicted that really encapsulates the ego. And anyone who's, who's had a really powerful uh, journey into addiction knows that they really are cut off from their family. That, you know, their family members are saying, you know, please stop drinking. And in somebody who's addicted to alcohol, it's like they can't even hear that message. They're cut off from what the world is asking from them. They're even cut off from their own natural instincts, which are telling them, please, you're like hurting your body. You know, can't you recognize you feel sick every morning? But if there's all of that's cut away and people are in like a, a prison, but they don't know it. And not only are they in a prison, but the prison seems precious to them. They're mistaking the prison for some kind of a palace. And then they fight ferociously against anybody who like tries to violate the prison and that's why you know when we have friends who are caught in addiction all the good advice in the world you know doesn't really help yeah exactly it doesn't get in through the wall so something needs to crack the wall open relative to addiction but let's talk about somebody who 
you know, isn't struggling with something that traumatic. Individuation was an idea that Jung coined, and it has to do with becoming uniquely who you are, separate from anything that the world or your culture wants you to be. And, and that can sound, you know, familiar, this idea of self-actualization. Mm-hmm. But what's difficult is that there's no way to standardize what that would look like. And this is where political movements or other kinds of philosophic movements fail. For instance, feminism often will promote a certain vision of a woman and then serve that to women and say, this is what it would look like to be an actualized woman. But every person's soul is absolutely unique. What about the spiritual world? Right, absolutely. What do you mean by by that, Sean? Like, what do you mean by that? like this in certain lineages of spirituality there's like this is what this is the model of the self-realized individual oh i see what you're saying yeah you should be right you should be like the buddha or you should be you know christ-like in some fashion or like mother Teresa in some fashion but any time that there's you know a a two-dimensional model that anyone is expected to absorb you're immediately violating your individual spirit and you're taking an outside authority and trying to internalize it and reshape who you are in order to approximate it and therefore receive the accolades of whatever the authority figure is who told you that so individuation assumes that every human being has a unique inner image of who and what they are destined to be. And that could involve a a vocation, but it probably has more to do with how and who you are psychologically. Is my intellect the primary tool with which I'm going to engage the world? Or is my heart the primary tool? Or, Or is my intuition? the primary stance, or or is my body sensation the primary stance? That we actually have a natural predisposition for what functions inside of us we're going to use to negotiate with the world, and a kind of internal image about how we are going to stand in relationship to the world. Now, this is kind of a hypothesis, but let's say it's true. So you're born... And you are this unique, you know, gorgeous, vibrant, you know, little girl. And it's inevitable that as you are expressing yourself in the environment, the environment gives you feedback. So maybe you're, you know, naturally a brilliant little girl and you're, you know, talking about ideas and you're talking about um, math or you're really thinking through things powerfully. And if you're raised in an environment where, you know, girls should be nice, but not smart, you know, because if you're smart and someone tells you, boys won't like you. Now that may seem ridiculous if you live in an urban center, but I got to tell you in the rural South, that idea is still alive and well. 
I think it's still alive and well, but in a subtle way. Yeah. Well, it's alive and well now in a way that some mothers actually tell their daughters that. I mean, they verbalize it. I remember doing uh, analysis with a woman who was raised in rural eastern Tennessee. And she was very, very smart. And so when we would talk about ideas and she would voice an opinion, she would immediately apologize. And so once I got to know her for a while and I kind of asked her about that, she kind of unpacked this enormous story where her mother, who was a bit of a Southern belle, was monitoring her daughters and constantly advocating for the idea that being nice was the path to success. Every time they left the house, be nice, that you be nice. And the way to be nice in that culture was to never say or do anything that would agitate anyone. And it also meant that you could never challenge anybody. So for her, it felt incredibly transgressive to even verbalize these very sophisticated philosophic thoughts that she had, because there's an inner representation of her mother that was policing her long after her mother had died. Now, if we don't know that about ourselves, we actually think that kind of videotape of our moms is actually part of who we are. We just assume that anything that pops up in our minds just must be part of who I am. But Jung surmised that that actually isn't true. If you were to imagine your, your psyche, your psychological life as a landscape, and that the person who you know yourself to be is only one figure on the landscape, and that you have a mother figure, generally a father figure, you have a shadow figure, which is all your disowned stuff, you often have some form of a religious figure, and then you have other figures on the horizon based on intense experiences that you've had in your life. And that each of those figures is communicating with you and influences you depending on what's been triggered. So another way of thinking about it is every human being is governed by a committee. And for instance, on this woman, her mother was one of the board members on her inner committee. And any time she was about to verbalize this incredible um, mental life that she had, you know, the mother was, you know, pounding on the conference table and pointing her finger and saying, stop, be nice, be nice. And she just believed that, you know, until she was like 50. How do you decipher between the, like, how could you know if it's so ingrained that it was, how could she decipher if it was her mom's voice or her own voice? So, one way would be the dreams. Sometimes these figures will show up in the dream life. Sometimes it's obvious from the narrative. People just begin to unpack their story and they'll put it out. But for me in that moment, it was the fact that she enjoyed, it was so visible that she enjoyed sharing this kind of rich idea she had, followed by this anxious apology. That 
honestly, that kind of wasn't rocket science. It, it was still unconscious to her, but to an observer, to someone who's really listening, that the conflict between those two parts of herself was really just in the room. And the fact that she would blush when she said, I'm sorry, which just, you know, to an observer, didn't make a lot of sense because what she had just said was astounding, you know, incredible. So part of it is just deep listening. Mm -hmm. The other part that we can just know is that we all have vibrant memories. And another way of talking about individuation is we have to differentiate ourselves from our memories to ask ourselves, who am I without all of the conditions that my memories still impose on me? Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the memories can be pleasant as well, and pleasant memories can be just as much of a problem because yeah. we can be seduced out of who we really are by rewards just as much as we can be pushed out of who we really are by punishments. Yeah. We, I am um, in my work that I do with money. Um, we look at uh, the relationship with time and there's a psychologist who did a big study on time, Philip Zimbardo, and he came up with the time perspective test. And one, one thing, if you're really stuck in the place of um, it's called the past, past, positive orientation it can impact your relationship with money in a way where you're like i'm grasping onto the way it used to be so i won't make certain like financial choices mm -hmm. and i can limit my present moment or my future because of the past positive memories there you go yeah that's, that's absolutely what freud and jung were even talking about long before modern psychology yeah so, for instance, um, you know, I know we're um, we're talking to a, a, a woman's audience here. You know, let's talk about the archetype of the daddy's girl. Oh yes, let's. <laughs> where do we start? Where do we start? <laughs> yeah. So, one of the ways that we could imagine this is that let's just say you know you're a little girl and you have a wonderful relationship to dad and you are the apple of his eye. And he's very warm. He's very affectionate, you know, but he also has, you know, high expectations. He has, you know, certain ideas of how the world works, how you as a young girl should fit into that world. And that because it's so warm and positive, you naturally want, you know, to please him because he's such a great guy. And so as you continue to mature and you move through life, you notice that there you are in college and um, every professor tells you what's expected and you are absolutely sitting in the first chair in the classroom, smiling broadly and absolutely thrilled to do exactly what the professor wants. And the professor comes back and says, you young lady are my star student. You are an amazing, amazing young person. And then the young woman kind of lights up that she feels like that's like a pot of gold. And then we have the positive father has been manifested again in the body of the professor. And then suddenly we're having a corporate job and you've got some 
but he, you know, you're working for, a, you know, maybe a very powerful man. And interestingly enough, maybe a powerful man that nobody else can get along with. But you instantly imagine that he's going to be a good father. So everything he says, you're happy to hear. Everything that he asks you to do is a warm, generous engagement with him. And you're kind of shining on him every time he gives you attention, even if he's not a really good guy. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> My mind's <I> racing. <laughs> This is really interesting because what you're describing is coming from an experience of the, the daddy's girl. I, and some things that you've said here, some behaviors I've experienced, but I've never really had a father figure around. So I'm like showing the same behaviors, but I'm, I don't have the father figure piece. But it's almost like the outcome is the same. It's like I'm, I really want that, that relationship. So I'm looking for it in the relationship with a powerful man in work or, you know, like in my, when I was corporate consulting, I'd always work directly with a male CEO who is very powerful, who, you know, some people may um, find challenging to work with, but like I was, I could do it because I was a people pleaser and and that um, it may have felt really good to be pleasing yeah. based on these warm childhood memories. So you would discover just in, through intuition what would please the CEO. You'd hear even the nuances and suggestions. You'd manifest them and this powerful guy would shine on you. And you'd have this warm, nostalgic feeling that this is really great. No, but that's the thing. I didn't, there was no nostalgic, nostalgic feeling because I didn't have that point of reference of the father figure. Yes, but you fantasized about it. I fantasized about it, yeah. And your fantasies, if you have enough warm, wonderful fantasies about something, that then becomes the father complex for you. If you're watching certain, you know, TV shows and there are warm father figures and you're in an imaginal world feeling like that's the father. Yeah. That's yeah. The father. And then we yeah. drink that in because, because something is kind of missing. So we have to put some kind of imagery in there. And then, and then there's also a father hunger, mm. which is a little different from being a daddy's girl. Mm -hmm. Father hunger comes out of a little bit of a different kind of need for being acknowledged by somebody who's a father figure and how far that you might go or how much you might give away of yourself in order to be affirmed by somebody who's a father figure. Mm. But I'd love to jump to a political example. Yeah. Think about Sarah Sanders mm. and her role with Donald Trump. Yes. Yeah. You know, I know sometimes we don't, we want to avoid politics because yeah. you know, we kind of, our audience gets, you know, upset with us. Yeah. But, you know, Donald Trump is a very complicated, the very least, very ambivalent kind of, you know, masculine leader. And Sarah Sanders seems to be willing to say anything to please him, regardless of whether or not it's true 
regardless of whether or not it's good or bad for the public. And she is able, and this is why she works so well as a press secretary, is that she believes it. Mm-hmm. And she's serving some of this bizarre reshaping of facts out to the press. There's a sense that she's really on board. Mm-hmm. That that some kind of a discriminative faculty in her mind has kind of been shut down. And whatever dad says, you know, that's right. That's right. (laughs) And then just kind of serves it forward and defends it. So in mythology, one of these roles would be Athena. If you remember in high school, um, uh, English class, you might have learned about mythology. And one day Zeus has the headache. And finally, it gets so bad that his forehead splits open and out jumps the goddess Athena. (laughs) so he now has a daughter that didn't even require a mother didn't even require a woman that this is a daughter that is totally constructed out of his mind and in mythology she is totally aligned with zeus she's rational she's a goddess of wisdom and law and the rules of warfare and she's a great negotiator but she and Zeus are absolutely aligned unequivocally. So there are some girls that feel they have sprung out of the imaginations of their fathers and have become the kinds of daughters and women that their fathers imagined for them. Now, again, this could be really rewarding, but what often happens in midlife, we call this a midlife crisis, You know, there's a woman who might have a really big career out of actually really warmly negotiating with perhaps even tyrannical, you know, powerful CEOs, male CEOs. And all of a sudden she begins to feel, I hate these guys. (laughs) These guys are horrible. Like, like when so-and-so talks to me, it makes, makes my skin crawl. Like, how could I have never noticed that before? And then that breaking through of her authentic experience of being around these really problematic men puts her into an absolute war with how she has been in the world and how she thinks her career needs to work. And that kind of a conflict will often bring people into analysis. And by the way, this doesn't happen just to women, but we're just using that paradigm. Yes. I'm actually just really inclined to read something. I'm just trying to search for it right now because Chantel, you know, remember that thing I posted in the blue? You remember? No. Bianca, you post a lot in many different colors. But there was just, there's just this, there's um, something that I posted. Um, I'm finding it right. Oh, here it is. Do you mind, do you guys mind if I read it? No, please. It just, it came up as you were speaking. Um, so here we go. Nick Smith is a character from a 1990 movie, Metropol- Metropolitan. And he makes a good point. Toxic people are always attractive. Why is that? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that so many of us in our society are raised by toxic people. And what we know is what we gravitate towards. 
Many of us grew up in households where addiction was a problem. Dad was an alcoholic and mom was a codependent on his addiction or vice versa. We watched, we learned. Addictive behaviors became the norm for us. We didn't like them, but they became familiar and comfortable. The older we got, the more we learned we could hide behind addictive behaviors. We gradually developed on our own, developed in our own addictive personalities. As we grew toward adulthood, we subconsciously recognized the signs of addiction in others. These signs are often called red flags. We see them subconsciously, but somehow manage to filter them out because they can reach our conscious minds. This is a process known better as denial. People with addictive personalities speak a silent language of attraction between themselves. Like attracts like, addicts attracts addicts, alcoholics attract codependents, and so on. Sorry, I didn't realize this is so long. Okay. Should I continue or should I sum it up? No, 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 keep going. Okay. In school, oh, so here we go. This is why so many men and women essentially marry their fathers or mothers and never understand what happened unless they enter a recovery program. Recovery has taught me that I'm attracted to the neediest people on earth. I could walk into a room of 500 people and make a beeline for the neediest person in the room. How could I do this? It was so easy. I subconsciously recognize the addictive language, verbal and body, spoken by other addicts in the room. Whoever spoke the language that said, hey you, yeah you, I'm the biggest perpetual victim and martyrer whoever lived, got my immediate attention. I'd strike, a com strike up a conversation with them as soon as they opened their mouth. My toes would curl in delight. Insane thoughts would, ru would rush through my mind. Yeah, this is the one. Oh, I can take care of you. I can meet your every need. You'll have to love me. You won't know how to live without me. Yes, I've finally met the love of my life. Of course, it never took long before the fairy tale became a nightmare. No one can fix a needy person, earn their love, and build a, lost, a lasting relationship on mutual codependent neediness. It's impossible. So I don't know why this kept flashing to me as you guys were speaking, because I was just thinking about my relationship with my father and how I've dated him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm also, it's also so hard because I'm also like, I'm not attracted to someone that's not like this. So what do I do? Right. It's, it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I kind of like feel like I'm in this space where I'm like, I don't know which way to go anymore. You know, it's, it's because I'm realizing the red flags that we're seeing, but mm. I'm also like, I'm also not interested in the other flags. <laughs> really right. So, there's several things that come to mind relative to our discussion is, you know, who is Bianca aside from her memories? Which is just an interesting question. Who is Bianca in relationship to other people, to career, to the world, to politics? If, if I wasn't conditioned so heavily by memories and particularly distressing or intense memories, so relative to this idea that you have, as we all do, an inner representation of the father, which is an amalgam of several things, all your memories, but particularly the emotionally charged memories, as well as literature, movies, your parents, fathers, if they made a big impression on you, all kind of get mixed up in that. One of the things that's mixed up with the father complex is that children have an absolute imperative to bond with their parents and to try to elicit a bonding back from them. 
And because children are incredibly neuroplastic, you know, the all kinds of possibilities of response are, are dancing in the brains of young children, that as they're fixed on their parents, there is a way in which you are tracking what brings you closer, what pushes you away, what gets a reward, what gets punished. And, and we all are shaping responses that kind of get us into an attachment relationship of some kind to our caregivers. By the time, you know, we're six years old, most of those structures are well established. And then by the time they become really relevant, when we're 15 or 20 or 30, there are these kind of patterns and channels that are worn into the psyche. So the first thing I think is to believe that our habits of perception and pleasure, for that matter, are nothing more than habits. And to at least posit the idea that you are more than what you are familiar with. Oh, that's so great. That's so amazing. Yeah, just even that in its simplicity is amazing. Yeah. Sorry. It's kind of like a mantra. Like every morning I just, you know, say that to myself until I can feel like I believe it. Once we have a sense of that, you know, the truth of that, then we can begin to become suspicious of the things that are familiar and appealing to us. Mm. Not, not attacking them, not going to war. And, and, and that's where you are, Bianca. You're suspicious now of the men that you beeline towards. You're developing kind of a healthy, suspicious curiosity. Like, what is, what is that about? Like, I don't even know that guy, but I, like, can't, can't take my eyes off. <laughs> so beautifully, you know, you're kind of taking a step back, introducing almost a kind of scientific curiosity. It's like your inner Jane Goodall kind of rises up, and she's, she's actually recording the dance of kind of human behaviors that are happening in our lives. As we begin to cultivate that objectivity, which we call, as Jungian analysts, the observing ego, then we can begin to watch when things become activated, and then most importantly, in our meditative periods, to monitor the imagery, the internal imagery that comes up when these things are activated. And this is where Jung really separated from what the Freudians were doing. The Freudians were working a lot with ideas, but Jung was working very heavily with images. So for instance, there you are at the party and you're looking at this guy and you feel this kind of thrum. And then you just kind of relax and you open up your inner imagination. And by that I mean, everybody's had like a highway hypnosis. You're like driving the car and then all of a sudden you start daydreaming and your daydreams are like wildly vivid and then you're like talking in the car and your hands are moving around. But you're still driving the car, like you're in, the, you're in your car. 
So you're there at the party feeling the thrum and then you open that daydreaming space and you begin to watch what's in the daydream. And that begins to tell you what's in motion at the level of soul, which is influencing that moment. And it's probably not about the guy who's across the room. Now, the things that are in motion in that imaginal world, some of them could be concrete memories, but many of them are symbolic images in the same way that dreams are symbolic. Could you give an example of an image, for instance, like even if it's made up, just kind of yeah. dig in more what you mean, as to what you mean by that? Sure. So let's just say you're sitting there looking at the sky, and then you're falling into a bit of an internal daydream as you're noticing the thrum. And then suddenly you're having, you know, an image of a puppy. And then all of a sudden, as you're watching the image of the puppy, you're thinking about the first time that you encountered a puppy and this incredible amount of excitement and promise and warmth and playfulness. And you realize that the puppy represents a part of yourself, the puppyish part of yourself that's looking for someone to take care of her. And in that moment, when we're feeling puppyish, we're also feeling vulnerable. And then we begin to imagine, well, like when my puppyish part comes forward, it's also looking for someone to take care of her. And if somebody doesn't take care of her, then I don't get to feel puppyish anymore. And then I just get to feel like a donkey that's going to work every morning. And I'm sick and tired of feeling like a donkey. I'd rather feel like a puppy. <laughs> God, that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> and I catch myself doing it sometimes. I'm like, oh, God, I'm just so bored. I'd rather just obsess over this and feel this, da, 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 even though I know you're wrong for me. Right. But I'd rather feel that than like this mundane couple of days I've just had. Wow. There you go. So for you, the other image might not be a puppy. It might be something much more invigorating. Now here's where. What would that be, Bianca? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'd have to. I don't know. I'd ha it'd have to come up, and then I would see it. I don't know. So that's that wonderful place where you have one foot in the outer world, and occasionally you have one foot in the inner world, so that you're tracking both things, and that gives you a glimpse into that subterranean parallel process that's going on, which in fact is influencing all of us tremendously. Mm. Now, sometimes the thing that's going on in the imaginal world, you know, is surprising to us. Some of the images might not be very appealing or even upsetting, or some of them might be outlandish or embarrassing. But if we maintain the attitude that the images you're seeing are not literal, or symbolic, then it becomes tolerable, but requires some decoding. Right. Now, the big jump, the liberating jump is, 
there are men in the world who when I'm around, my inner puppy emerges, who I love feeling like an inner puppy, because I almost never feel like an inner puppy. <laughs> and I have this incredible hope that this guy is gonna take care of my inner puppy. Stop, wait a minute. That inner puppy's already in me, and it was in me before I looked at that guy. That mm. that guy didn't create the inner puppy, I just, don't think of accessing it until he shows up. Yes. Huh. Maybe I can go hunting for my inner puppy and I can take care of my inner puppy and become puppyish when it feels good to me. And it's not tethered to the puppy keepers of the world who actually turn out to be really lousy boyfriends. <laughs> Because there are plenty of times you don't want to be treated like a puppy, by the way. Like that might be good on rare occasion. <laughs> so if you're taking care of your inner puppy, that actually feels really darn liberating. And then this wonderful thing happens. And of course, we're making this example up, but I get to have an inner puppy instead of being a puppy. And that's liberating. Wow. So my next question that's caught popping into my mind as you're saying this is, so where does that leave relationships? So, and by relationships, I think we're talking about romantic relationships. relationships yeah. Because you know, friendship relationships are a whole other interesting thing. Yes. So Jung talked a lot about relationships, and in part because he really had a hard time negotiating romantic relationships. I mean, he got married to a wonderful woman, Emma, but he struggled with falling in love with other women. He famously had affairs. You know, he was working with Freud. He's like racking his brain, like, how do I get out of this kind of craziness in my life? Um, and, and it really was a, an incredible problem for him. That said, every person has an inner image of the ideal other. So every woman has an inner image of a man that would complement her perfectly. And that inner image is formed in response to her dominant developed qualities so that the inner image represents an opposite. So for instance, and I see this all the time, women who are um, powerfully intellectual, really their thinking function is gorgeously developed. They're scholars, they love being scholars, they're amazing at it. They will sometimes have an inner image of a man who is a manual laborer, who might be a carpenter, or, or somebody who's a gardener, who lives a life that's connected to the senses, um, that, you know, maybe is a forest ranger. <clears throat> because that compensates for the way that she lives a life of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so even though her friends might, you know, set her up for dates with other, you know, professors or scholars, she might feel like, you know, oh, it's just like I'm talking to myself. Like, this is really exhausting. I feel like I'm at work. 
And then all of a sudden, you know, she decides she's going to take a vacation to Colorado. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a forest ranger there who's this really earthy, physical kind of guy, kind of look at each other and all of a sudden sparks are flying. So one of the things we could imagine is that she has an inner man that is really quite the opposite of her. And when she meets him in the outer world or meets a representation of him in the outer world, sparks fly and it seems very, very exciting. And it evokes the fantasy of completion. And that's one of the things that drives love, is, a, is this feeling that she completes me, he completes me. Now, that goes to this deep spiritual desire to actualize. We do want to be complete. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's living an incredible intellectual life really does also long to have a life of the senses and also longs to know what it's like to be emotionally vibrant, mm-hmm. particularly if their intellect has dwarfed those other parts. The soul wants it. And often in midlife, we'll, we'll set up a war to force the person to, to go into some of those other parts of themselves because the soul has just had enough of living through one lens. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> what often happens is, let's just say our, our brilliant scholar and our earthy forest ranger decide to have a relationship and it lasts for many years. At first, the feeling of difference is incredibly exciting. And the friction of that, you know, heats up in passion and fascination. Then what begins to happen is it moves into irritation. Because for the exact same reasons that, you know, oh, my God, he doesn't know anything about politics. Oh, my God, this guy hasn't read a book in the last 10 years. Like, what am I thinking? What was I thinking? You know, and he's kind of looking at her saying, you know, she will, she will not go on a hike with me. You know, I, I, you know, she won't do this or that, or, you know, she's just really not a lot of fun. So all of a sudden, then people begin to realize how different the other person is and the accommodations that that demands. If they stay together long enough, and this happens actually, this has been uh, clinically studied, It'll happen within six months to 24 months. That the projection stage takes about six to 24 months to fade because the reality that the other person is not your fantasy, your internal fantasy, finally emerges because there's enough dissonance. So she finally discovers, wow, he's not perfect just because he's a forest ranger and he's earthy. And we would say that that's when the actual relationship begins. Yeah. In as much as you're having a relationship with another unique human being and not your fantasy. At that point, I think the most important question to ask ourselves is whether or not we have a legitimate, sustained, interest in who that person is. 
and that that is the foundation for mature love. You almost just answered my question that was been beaming in my mind as you just said that because I keep coming back to my spiritual practices and all the things that I've learned. And no matter what lineage it is that I'm looking at, it's always like you have everything, like you said, inside of you. You have the puppy inside of you already. You just have to access it. So then my mind went, well, then what the hell do we need a relationship for? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Why, if I can really like get to that and access all of these feelings that I want you to give me by myself, my mind then goes, well, then what the hell do I need a relationship for? Right. <clears throat> so there are all kinds of reasons just in terms of evolution, you know, we partner off in heterosexual relationships. There's a partnering because of the creation of children, because sex is important and vibrant and, you know, valuable inside of us. Yeah. Remember we... that, Bianca? Yeah. <laughs> I will not forget. <laughs> I think there's a subtext here that I don't know if we should go into. <laughs> <laughs> But, I, but coming to this idea of sex is that just having a sustained interest in somebody is, I think, the foundation of it. But things like erotic you know, uh, satisfaction is also important for a romantic relationship, for sure. And then we come together to build resources. You know, two people come together, share resources. They can buy a house. They can create a lifestyle. They can manifest other aesthetic values which would be difficult for somebody perhaps to manifest alone. There's feelings of protection, social status. Those things are real. You know, those are not, that's not nothing. And connection. And connection. Like deep connection yeah. and intimacy. Yeah. I guess why, why it came up for me in that way is so interesting because I'm so, and we've talked about this, Chantel, so much, but... There's so, there are so few examples of relationships around me and in our culture that do not teach, that teach you, sorry, that do not teach you to look for something in someone else that you want. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like for all the, all of the examples that I think of or that come to mind or my friends or people around me, it's like, I can see that in their relationship, they're grabbing something that they want from the other person for them, for the, for the person to do for them or something mm -hmm. for the other person to fulfill. So then I'm like, well, if we're not reaching for relationships for that, I guess it just makes it a lot more simple. Well, but I have to say that, um, you know, acknowledging what our needs are and discovering that another person can meet our needs and hopefully we also meet their needs, that is the beginning of relationship. It may not be a relationship that lasts for 40 years because your needs change. So I think if, if in the background the question is, how do I get in a relationship that will last from now until I die? That's a different question. But to think about why people couple is valid. Yeah, and also I love like what you're talking about that that part of that's in us that we that we see in the other person, and we want to kind of like allow that part to rise up. I just think like having those opportunities through relationship to access like mirroring for our own personal growth, even if the relationship only lasts six months, like that's an incredible blessing because Absolutely. it is about like this, this life is about that, that process of growth and learning or unlearning. Right. So mm -hmm. 
to me, that's, that's a really value, valuable part of like trying out relationships. Yes, yeah. for whatever amount of time. So if we go back to our paradigm of the scholar and the forest ranger, he might actually introduce her to the forest, to the life of nature in a way that is extraordinarily expansive for her. And she might introduce him to a, men a dimension of intellectual life that he just never imagined. And so that, that there's a way that what they've projected on the other person really does get shared and stimulated in each other. And that's often the kind of relationship that will last for a while. Now, after a certain amount of time, what happens when our scholar becomes a rock climbing weekend warrior, log cabin building, you know, nature person? And then all of a sudden, you know, the forest ranger is getting his PhD in some kind of ecological management. You know, they, they've really done it. They've actually, they've actualized the stuff that the other person was carrying. What often happens there is that the relationship tames and becomes softer. And then, and then it, it is a bit of a decision, it's will. Do people will to stay in the relationship? Do they intend it? Do they choose it? Because there are a set of values around the relationship that they still are aligned with. And that's up to each individual person. <clears throat> I love how, when we talked last time about this, you were talking about like, that's really when the relationship and like working relationship skills begins. <clears throat> yeah, I love that. And I, I also like, um, I feel there's a part of me that feels a little bit hopeless living in this like hedonistic society about long-term relationships because like when we get to that point it's like okay now it's work maybe it doesn't give that like that hit of hedonism that we were originally feeling um, can, you, can you unpack what let's do this wonderful experience of the inner world and the outer world yeah. when you say the word hedonism yeah what comes up in the imaginal world for you so that i can really understand it it's um it's I, I i what comes up for me is um you know it's funny i want to say the the um like obviously it's like this this it's a form of soothing mm -hmm. it's a form of creating pleasure and then mm -hmm. as i'm like hearing myself speak i'm like wow, it's the loss of self. It's codependent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't surprise me that I, I brought this up and I talked about the hopelessness because, you know, I just through my own path of being in family and relations with people in addiction, I have some codependent behaviors and some, yeah. you know, work in Al-Anon programs. So my, I, 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 at times, if I'm not like being like sitting back in the seat of the observer and just acting, I may act out behaviors of um, like codependency, I guess. And yeah, so I could look at relationships in that sense, like um, seeking out, seeking out 
um, validation of self through the love of another. So, so that's wonderful. And I wish more people would do this, that we tossed out a rich word like hedonism and we might've launched into a conversation like we both knew what we were talking about. Yeah. So, right? Because we do that all the time. Yeah. It, was, it was a beautiful moment to just, for us all to kind of just pause for a minute and just be like, so drop down to another level. What does that mean for you? Mm-hmm. And, and your meaning is a bit different from where I would have gone. So yeah. I'm glad we took the time. Yeah. <clears throat> so hedonism, this idea of soothing and pleasure, codependence, I'd like to replace the word codependent with dependency needs. Mm. Because I have to say, and I hope everyone hears this, is that it is natural to have certain dependency needs on other human beings Mm -hmm. because it is an utter fantasy to think that we would never have any dependency needs. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. It would be inhuman. We'd be like robots. Yeah. So the question is around codependence is when the dependent needs needs are interfering with my self-development. Yeah. Then, then we have to question it. <clears throat> but so we'll go to hedonism, the soothing pleasure, dependency needs, validating needs, needs to be safe. Yeah. And some part of your psyche might find those needs very suspicious and then categorize them as hedonism. Yeah. And one of the reasons that we will characterize our normal and natural needs as bad is because it's too painful to bear them when they're not being met. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Why are you trying to make me cry on this podcast? I can feel it. I feel a little, I can feel something welling up in my eyes because I think that's the human condition. Yeah. We also learn. Do you mind repeating that again? I don't know if I can as well as I did the first time. However it comes. However you channel that. Sure. So how I would want to reframe it is, We're little children, and we do need to be soothed. I mean, we're kids. We do need to have some senses of pleasure. You know, the pleasure with being, you know, of a flower, with a puppy, with, you know, in the yard. And we do need to feel that we can be dependent on the people around us. We do need to be validated. We do need to feel safe. But if our environment never gives us those things or even punishes us for trying to get them, the natural attitude that a child adopts is, wow, those things must be bad. And we can put them all in the basket of problems, of bad things, which right now might be covered with this idea of hedonism because they're too painful to feel when they're not being met. This is an incredibly excruciating um, trap because you really do need those things and you do need to find people 
whether it's friends or lovers, mentors, you do need people to give you those things. And it is reasonable to want them because it's human. Yeah. And if you've been choosing people who don't provide those things because I call them bad, then you're setting yourself up to date people who actually will never meet your needs. <laughs> and that hurts. Yeah. Wow, you just summed it up. That was right on the money. It kind of articulated exactly what I've been doing because you feel like, okay, I'm going to deny all this stuff because that's stuff I need to work on because it's not really good because I wasn't getting it. Right. Wow. And there's also, you know, running around the culture, there are some really problematic images of what an actualized woman looks like. Yeah. And part of that is she doesn't need anybody. She can take care of herself. She pursues her own pleasures. She doesn't need, need to meet other people's needs. She's the captain of her ship in some fashion. And maybe that is true for, for some women. But, but that may not be true for a lot of women. That's oh, too that may not encompass all of her. Like that might be, yeah. those things might very well be true. But there's also a lot of other things. A lot, there are many other needs that she has within that as well. Right. That it's too, it's too dimensional. Right. And so that it can't carry everything that's needed. And then women are often diminished for needing to be soothed appropriately or needing to be validated or loved in certain ways. Yeah, there's a there is an entire narrative around like women being needy. And why don't we change the narrative and say that women are verbalizing their needs? Yeah. And what I often see in my work with men is that men are also taught to not verbalize their needs. Yeah. And so they will be in relationships feeling dissatisfied, feeling like it's not working, and then they they leave and they cast themselves out into the great lottery of dating, hoping that a woman will miraculously identify his needs and meet them without him verbalizing them or without him even knowing what they are. Wow. And just like a lottery, maybe one in you know 9.67 million, that might happen, but it generally doesn't. So, the fact that women are more in touch with their needs, men also have to be able to verbalize what they need. And that should be part of the dating process. These are my needs, this is your needs, this is some visions that I have for life. You know, can this work? Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to part one of our podcast with Joseph Lee. Believe it or not, there is a lot more to discuss and unpack. Uh, we wanted to make sure that this one was digestible for you and not super long. So stay tuned for part two next week. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you haven't already, leave us a review. Until next time. <laughs>